Our new year begins in waiting. That is a pretty strange and odd way to kick off a new year. Many people crater into January 1st, having survived that breakneck, exhausting sprint that is Thanksgiving to New Year's, which we're in the middle of. But our liturgical calendar moves to an entirely different rhythm. Our new year begins early, as you can tell, and it begins with waiting, odd and peculiar as that might seem. But it's not just any kind of waiting. It is biblical waiting. If you get anything from today about biblical waiting, it is active. It is never passive. It's never given over to resignation. There's no proverbial sitting on the hands. That's not waiting as the scriptures describe it. Jesus' words in our gospel reading towards the very end show us how it's done. He talks about staying awake. He talks about remaining alert. It's a stubborn vigilance that's anchored in hope. It's tethered to God's faithful, steadfast promises, calling upon this God who has acted mightily in the past. This is what the scripture means when it calls us to wait upon the Lord. And Advent is all about this brand of hopeful waiting. So before we arrive at the incarnation, which is Christmas, we wait through Advent first. We prepare for his coming, for his Advent. That's what the term means, his coming. And we do this in another odd, peculiar way, in Advent. We prepare for Christmas by focusing on Jesus' second coming, which is all about things being made right. It's all about the restoration of all things. It's all about uh, that great reversal of the stranglehold that the world, the flesh, and the devil have upon all of humanity. It's that same desire for redemption that drove the hopes for Messiah more than 2,000 years ago. Advent is about that same quality of yearning, that same quality of aching, hoping, anticipating, waiting for the Messiah to come and to set things right. To wait like this, to, to prepare like this, I should say, means that we name shamelessly our need for a Savior. That we own our hunger, we own our dependence, because we cannot make things right in this world, much less in our own lives. Amen? (laughs) It's beyond us. We need a Savior. Now, how many times are God's people called to wait in the Old Testament alone? I did not do an official tally of that, but I know it's a lot. Many, many times, just in the Old Testament, are we called to wait. Just look at the Psalms alone. That word occurs so many times. We certainly see this theme of waiting in Isaiah, which is where we're going to sort of ruminate and work our way through today. Isaiah 64, 1 through 9. That theme is there. One of the most famous verses from Isaiah, Isaiah 40, 31. Those that wait upon the Lord shall what? Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. You're with me. Very good. Our Isaiah passage this morning, Isaiah 64, 1 through 9. Here's verse 4. Listen to this. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Underscore emphasis. Now, Isaiah knew a thing or two about waiting. He was a great prophet, ministered in the 8th century before Jesus. This was a century of tremendous tumult and upheaval. He preached a message of warning and of comfort. They went hand in hand. Most of Israel ignored his warnings, and the result was pretty catastrophic. Droughts, 
famine, exile, foreign occupation. All hope appeared lost to them. But a faithful remnant clung to Isaiah's prophecies of hope. That's why Isaiah is sometimes called an evangelical prophet. A prophet of good news. Because he foresaw and wrote of the coming mission of Jesus like no other prophet before him did. Isaiah knew a thing or two about waiting. He tells us that God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. That's verse 4, 64-4. Now, my first question is, why is God so bent on waiting? It seems awful important to him, right? Let me give you the unpopular but true reason why God is bent on waiting. He keeps us waiting on purpose, okay? Why is that? Because we aren't ready to receive the good gift that awaits us. That is the purpose. I'm giving a story from uh, my slash my family's life. Jude and I waited and suffered through infertility for years. We pleaded with God for a child. We waited. We wrestled. We shed tears. And then we waited some more, and then we shed some more tears. Years went by as we watched our closest friends move to having one child to two, to three, so on and so forth. The pain at times was unbearable. We were the only couple without children, singled out. God, come. We just, we ached for that. God, please show up. Will you show up for us? We stepped into uh, the adoption process, but even that was riddled with more waiting and with more heartache and more difficulty. When we had more or less given up and when we were least expecting it, God miraculously showed up. A miraculous surprise pregnancy after six long years of a lot of tears and just utter befuddlement. After 15 years of marriage, that is how our Ava came into our lives. And our hearts were so ready to meet her and to receive her into our home and into our lives. As we prepared for her birth, I mean, I'll speak for both of us. We have never known so much purpose and intention. We had immense joy, tireless energy as we prepared our house to receive this baby. The care, the intention, the creativity, the labor that just went into preparing her room alone was really something else. We were now ready to receive this good gift of God far more than we were in the years prior when we first wanted kids. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. uh, God's timing is still a grand mystery to us in that. He used that waiting to prepare us to fully receive the gift that was and is our Ava. That is true. So God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. He does keep us waiting on purpose. And the reason is because we generally aren't ready to receive the good gift that awaits us. Now, there's another underlying reason for this waiting. If God is the deepest desire of the human heart, and I believe he is, he's worth waiting for. Now, that's certainly true in an eternal sense, right? Scripture clearly teaches us that our earthly sufferings will pale in comparison to the joys of being united with the Lord in heaven. But it's also true for our life here on earth. We yearn to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We're not just waiting on meeting God in the great by and by. We're waiting on him in the here and now. 
just as Israel did 2,000 years ago. Now, the irony, I think you know this, is that God is waiting upon us too. We're not the only ones waiting. God's waiting too. He suffers through our bad choices. He suffers through our destructive behaviors. I mean, I find it maddening that the Lord gives us such a long leash. My goodness. The prodigal son, very long leash. Israel, very long leash. Us, very long leash. Apparently, God will allow us to shipwreck our lives. He will wait upon us even then. But in the background, in the wreckage and in the wake that is our lives sometimes, he's orchestrating and actively working for our good, searching us out before he's a thought on our minds, certainly. God uses the sinful rebellion of our lives for redemptive ends. That is his specialty. God does that like no other. Like the good father that he is, verse 8 in our passage today, Isaiah, he not only seeks us out, but he also readies his house to receive us when we come to our senses and return home. When we repent, which means just to turn around and head home. God prepares for us while he actively seeks us out. Isn't that the heart of the gospel? Anyway, we can learn a thing or two from how God waits. In Isaiah 64, 1 through 9, this is one of the most powerful laments in the Holy Testament. And it's got some stiff competition. It's got to compete with Lamentations and the Psalms. I think it's one of the most powerful. Speaking for all of Israel, Isaiah appeals to God their Father, knowing that based off their merits, they do not have a leg to stand on. His appeal couldn't be more communal. All through that passage, if you heard it, there's this uh, phrase, that, refrain that goes over and over. We all have done this, or all of us have done this. And he does this as he recalls God's mighty saving acts in the past. So they send up the emergency flare to the Lord. First verse. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. God, help. God, save. God, come. I mean, can't you hear their desperation in and through this passage? They've seen the Lord come to their aid before. They know this. They've seen him be that mighty divine warrior who fights on their behalf. Will he come again? That question seems to plague them in this passage. Or will their sin simply be too much for God to handle? They cry out in powerlessness. There's repentance and the hope of God meeting them in that place of brokenness. Hear this. We sin and our sins we've been a long time. And shall we be saved? We've all become like one who's unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, they take us away. It's verses 5 and 6. They know their sins have alienated them from the Lord. They sense his absence. Shall we be saved? Will God heal the breach? This is where the waiting gets awful difficult and tenuous. But God the Father, also described as a potter, in verse 8, caught that, continually molding us continually fashioning us in the background, in the midst of our utter desperation. This is the painful crucible of change. God, the great artisan, he doesn't just discard us as mere materials. No, no. God uses the raw material of our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, all points in between, and he wastes nothing. Why? Because we're precious to him. 
We're precious to him. What hope and purpose there is in that, even though we are blind to see it, what he's doing in the background. And it's a matter of allowing God to be the creator, potter, and a matter of us submitting as his creatures, clay. He's certainly waiting for us to yield, to trust, to surrender. Now, if you're anything like me, I think you might be. If we're honest, it is in our nature to avoid waiting. Like the plague in our instant everything culture, uh, we hate to wait. You know, we're told there's not much sense in it. Grab what you want, grab it right now. Waiting, uh, we run from it. I mean, what possible benefit could be gained by waiting? Biblical waiting is, can be arduous. Holding on to hope can be painful, uncomfortable, right? Those liminal spaces where we're waiting for God to show up in our lives, those places we've maybe prayed over for years, hoping for change, hoping for miracles, it's hard. But if we give up on waiting, what do we risk? Well, one author speaks to that. Here's what she has to say. Perhaps the rush to Christmas is the rush past the painful reality that makes Christmas so utterly spectacular. Luther and the other reformers, they understood this 500 years ago. The recognition of how powerless we actually are frees us. Here's some paradox for you. It frees us for wonderment, gratitude, and the elation that is Christmas. At the beginning of Advent, Isaiah asks us to surrender. Stop fighting to be good or to do better. Stop rushing past the hard lessons. After all, we all fade like a leaf. That is until God claims us as sacred clay. Amen. That's been said uh, that the biblical message starts on the assumption that everything else has failed. Everything's been tried. Everything's failed. And then it pronounces, and only then does it pronounce its message. And that message wasn't is a person named Jesus. So as we wait in Advent, we reflect on things. We reflect on uh, the gravitas of our sin, our powerlessness, and, and our human frailty. So that when the feast and the cure that is Jesus, when that arrives, we're ready. <laughs> and we're prepared to fully receive God's most precious gift, who is Christ the Lord. The wisdom and brilliance of our church calendar is this. I love this. Penitential seasons like Advent that we're entering into and like Lent, they always precede celebratory seasons like Christmas and Easter. It's a biblical pattern. It's a scriptural rhythm. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. That's like the clarion call of Advent. Preparation is waiting. Waiting is preparation. That's how we get ready to celebrate the coming of our Lord. Waiting is not a hard theme, I don't think, to uh, riff off of right now. The world is doing a fair amount of waiting on its own. In this world that we are a part of. Waiting on a COVID vaccine. Everyone's waiting on that. Waiting for an end of this pandemic. To get back to normal. Everyone's waiting on that. Hungering for that. Yearning for that. Our church has been in a season of waiting. Have we not? And I believe our church is actually well-primed and as ready for Advent as maybe we've ever been. We've been waiting on where we're going to end up in East Charlotte. What building and facility might the Lord lead us to? 
We've been waiting to see what neighborhood we might end up in. Who will serve? Who are those folks? And perhaps we've been waiting to see if we're going to survive this growing season. We have been waiting, actively waiting, which again means prayerful, intentional, attentive, hope-filled. God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Isaiah 64, 4. So we've been waiting as a church. Now, I would bet, I'm a betting man, many of you are waiting on the Lord in your own lives, right? Perhaps you're aching, yearning for him to to show up in some specific area, to heal, to set something right, to, to reconcile something. Maybe you're waiting on him to show up and do a work in your heart. Maybe you're waiting on him to do a work in your family, in your marriage, with your kids, in your other relationships, with your physical needs. The list is as manifold as it is endless. Friends, God sees you and God hears you and God waits for you. He's waiting with you, for you. Don't give up. Please don't settle for resignation. Don't settle for good enough. Don't do it. Keep knocking, keep seeking, keep waiting upon the Lord. Choose to hope. Hope in Him. I don't know if God's going to give you what you want and what you're waiting on specifically, but this is something that I do know. God acts on behalf of those who wait for Him. He does. How might that change how you approach Advent this year? God is worth waiting for. God is worth the wait. That's what I want to leave you with today. In this new year, may we wait upon the Lord. He's worth waiting for. May we prepare to celebrate because God is indeed worth the wait.